This is Belize from UCLA Radio, and you're listening to The Menu. Good afternoon, everyone. This is Belize. And I'm Henry. And you're listening to The Menu on UCLAradio.com, where we talk about the food culture and industry in Los Angeles and interview the people who make it special. Today we have a very special guest. Our guest is Andrea Chang. Andrea has been a journalist for the LA Times since 2007 and was recently selected to be the deputy food editor for the new and revitalized LA Times food section in 2018. Andrea, welcome to the menu on UCLA Radio. Thanks for having me. Um, so we usually start our show with a quick warm-up question. Um, what did you have this week or ate this week that you really liked? Oh, my God. So many things in this job. <laughs> <laughs> so many things in this job. Um, so I usually eat out at least once a day, if not like three times wow. a day. Wow. Yeah, which is crazy. Um, and I'd like to do a mix of new restaurants and places that I really love. So one of the places that I went to this week that's new is Kazan, which is a soba restaurant on La Cienega in Beverly Hills. It's by the guy who um, founded Tatsu Ramen on Melrose. So I checked that out a couple of nights ago um, and had like a really spicy, fiery, like to me it wasn't soba. It was actually the noodles were significantly thicker um, and it had lamb chops in it and uh, was just like the perfect thing and kind of for L.A., a chilly winter night. Sounds delicious. Yeah. What did you have, honey? Um, I went to Cola Pasta last night. Um, I want to go there. Yeah, it was delicious. It was wonderful. And they were so friendly. Um, did you get that half moon? The- I did. Oh we, we got the half moon beet uh, ravioli with the poppy poppy seeds and brown butter sauce. It was phenomenal. Why Ooh. is it called half moon? I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> because, it, you know, like how a full ravioli is like a full circle. Oh, like a half circle, okay. like a crescent moon, sort of. Okay. It's their specialty there. That's so funny you mentioned that because, like, when I was saying I kind of want to go on a hike this weekend, <laughs> I was thinking maybe I could go and, like, get pasta and carb load before, and that was top of my list mm. for where I want to, what I want to hit up. It would be the perfect place. We also got, um, let's see, calamarata. Um, it's just, like, the perfect amount of sauce, not, like, just barely coating the outside, um, just a hint of oregano and some like very fresh che- fresh cheese super al dente like some of the most al dente pasta that i've had in a really long time and it was perfect it was delicious and very simple and we also had the sweet corn soup um they're only like one of the three appetizers and um it was last night when it started to rain and i know a lot of people got caught off guard by the rain last night and um it was like the perfect it was the perfect sort of cold weather again another soup it was delicious oh. yeah that sounds really nice. Mm-hmm. I should try that place out too. What about you, Bliss? Um, I went to the Exchange um, restaurant for the first time, and I'm I'm obsessed with hummus, and I make hummus like all the time at home. So, um, getting to try like hummus in different um, restaurants in Los Angeles is one of my hobbies right now, and I like the hummus. I thought it was a little bit too citrusy for me. Mm-hmm. I really like that bitter taste of tahini, so, but um, it was still pretty well balanced. We also got the burnt eggplant um, and the spicy 
grilled sweet potatoes, which were actually very spicy that we couldn't finish the plate. Um, but it had this very like sweet and crunchy, like nutty um, coating on top, which um, I think also had a little spice in it, but it kind of, um, you know, balanced that spiciness. Um, there was also a creamy almond um, sauce at the bottom. So it was well balanced, but I don't think I handle spice really well. So that might be the reason. Um, we also had the tahini topped with grated tomato. Um, and it was also um, very creamy and very like delicate and like light, but tasty at the same time. I just wish there were more tomatoes mm -hmm. on top. But other than that, I, I really enjoyed my experience there. And the place is cool because it's downtown, it's in a hotel, and I know a lot of people are like reluctant sometimes to try out a hotel restaurant. Mm -hmm. But I just, I like the vibe there. Um, I had a really good yellowtail collar like when I was oh. there a few months ago. That was like excellent, not spicy. <laughs> in case you go back. That's, yeah, that's good to know. Um, yeah, uh, there's also like a lot of um, hotels renewing their restaurants mm -hmm. and like. So many is the. Premier yeah. example, right? Somni mm -hmm. is a really good example of that at the SLS Beverly Hills, also on La Cienega, um, for, you know, blow out the bank, super <laughs> expensive, <laughs> somewhat Spanish-inspired theatrical tasting menu experience. Um, I like that place a lot. I also, I mean, I still love the bazaar, even though, mm -hmm. like, that place is mm -hmm. significantly, well, it's now, you know, what, many years old. But I feel like when out-of-towners come, they love going there and getting... Um, just kind of like a overly dramatic <laughs> experience with their with their dinner, and and far less expensive than Somni. Um, we're or at least I am still trying to get the vernacular down on these little mini reviews, and um, you're very good at that. Maybe you can give us some hints a little later in the store in the in the hour. <laughs> like mini reviews of, of like, like, like places. Yeah, that you, yeah. It's often I find myself. You know, trying to find the words to describe in an accurate manner. And yeah, it's funny you say that because when I um, when I joined the food section in August 2018, it was you know a month after Jonathan Gold died, and we, um, my colleagues Jen Harris and Amy Scattergood and I had to sort of fill in on the annual 101 Best Restaurants Guide. And you know, usually in the past that was Jonathan's guide, and mm -hmm. he would put together his picks for 101 favorite restaurants. Um, and write up these like short little blurbs. And he was the master at mm -hmm. that, you know, just beautifully written, um, dynamic writing about food. You know, he'd been doing it for such a long time and still found ways to uh, evoke emotion when it comes to eating um, in a way that no one else could. And I remembered I was, you know, as we were writing stuff, I'm like, wow, it's kind of difficult to to explain and describe food using more than like a limited number of the same words like you know we were all joking around like we need more we need more adjectives we need better <laughs> verbs you know so i think that that's something that that i still think about and then i also talk to my writers about as well in the food section um to try to expand our horizons for like how to describe a dish yeah and um we know that you covered like a lot of sections in la times like politics, business, technology. How did you transition to the food section? So prior, so the LA Times was my first job outside of college. Oh, wow. um, and then, I know, I mean, I've been lucky. It's my 13th year there, which is crazy. Uh, all of my 
journalism internships when I was in college were in the metro sections of various papers. So I thought that I'd be writing about, you know, cities, courts, cops, that kind of thing. And then when I joined the Times, there was an opportunity um, the summer after college to be a business intern at the LA Times. And I was like, oh my God, I know nothing about business. I thought it was going to be about covering the stock markets. You know, it was just like <laughs> totally out of my element. But the recruiter of the Times was like, look, it's a great place to learn. You'll pick up a whole new set of skills that are different from covering Metro. You should just try it out. So I joined the business section um, and I was actually in it for, uh, oh my God, 11 years, starting doing like general business. Um, I joined right as like the Great Recession was hitting. and Good time. Yeah, it was crazy. I mean, a lot of like my days were spent like camping outside of banks and talking to people um, who had just lost, you know, a lot of money. Uh, then I covered retail and, you know, covering the holiday season, going to malls, talking to people who like in the past would spend hundreds of dollars on Christmas. And then we're now like shopping for discounts for their kids because they had lost their jobs that year. Um, so it ended up actually being great um, for me as a journalist to just just such an like important time I feel like in the last you know like of just I feel like expanding what I could do beyond what I'd been doing in J school uh, and I think that writing about business helped prepare me actually for the food section because so much of what restaurants do and I think that was a surprise for me talking to chefs you know I thought a lot of what would be on their mind would be primarily about food and for yeah. I mean that is true but it's also about how to successfully run a small business. Mm -hmm. And I think we've seen, you know, a fair number of restaurants struggle with that. Like they've got great food. Um, they've got great personalities. They have an idea, but like they just don't have the right business framework for it. And then after just a few months, the restaurants, you know, end up closing. So anyway, so I did that. Um, I covered tech for a while. Uh, so Apple, I was like there for like, you know, a bunch of like the iPhone launches in San Francisco. Um, I'd go to CES in Las Vegas every year and like talk to the executives about, you know, when I first joined the the tech section, we like Blackberry was still like the <laughs> thing, mm -hmm. you know, and now. And Wait, I think, Blackberry's not the thing anymore? <laughs> I Do think, you have one? <laughs> I think we... Obama used it while he was in, you know, he was a president. Really? I, I remember seeing like blackberries in his hand because apparently they were like it. yeah they were more secure. They were more secure and like I think I, if I remember correctly, he liked having and I I did too. You know, having an actual keyboard, keyboard. Mm. You know, to type on instead of like tapping away. I <laughs> I held on to my blackberry for a lot longer than I probably should have, <laughs> to be totally honest. Um, but yeah, and then also covering the LA startup scene, which was really exciting. You know, at the time like Snapchat was was like mm -hmm. tiny when I joined. Mm -hmm tech. Um, and then, you know, seeing their like rapid rise and then sort of kind of faltering a bit after that. Um, so I loved covering tech and then uh, became an assistant business editor. And then I joined food about a year and a half ago. So what was your relationship like before you joined food? And how do you think it's changed? I'm sorry, your relationship with food before oh. you joined the food <laughs> section? Um, and how do you think it's changed since you've joined? I so I mean my relationship with food is I've always like even when I was in the business section my passion really was food I I was mm. religiously reading Jonathan I loved reading Jen Harris um, and you know we 
worked on different floors at the LA Times. That was back when we were downtown. Now our offices are in El Segundo. Um, and I really admired what they were doing. And just thinking like career-wise, at some point I would have loved to have made the jump to food, which is obviously very different from what I was doing in business. Um, so how has it changed? I mean, the section has changed dramatically in the last year and a half. Obviously, with the passing of Jonathan, um, it forced a total rethinking of how to do the food section. And um, other than his passing, the other big thing that happened in 2018 was was the newspaper was sold. So pr- prior to that, we were owned by Tronk um, in Chicago. And now... Thankfully, we are owned by Patrick Soon-Shang, uh, who is a billionaire, part owner of the Lakers, um, big biotech executive. Uh, so now we're locally owned and privately owned, and that has been fantastic for for the publication. Um, and it's opened up a lot of doors for us, a lot of new resources that we didn't previously have. So, and you know, the unfortunate part is all of these things were gearing up to change, you know, with Jonathan kind of at the helm. When he, so this was spring, summer 2018, we had just been sold. We were talking about what we were going to do to push the food section forward. At the time, food didn't even have its own standalone section. We were just a couple of pages buried inside the Saturday feature section. And then our executives, top editors were like, let's bring food out and make it its own standalone section with like food on like, the you know, with like a big banner on like the the front of the section, um, pull it out of like we were like basically sharing space with home uh, and things that, you know, it just kind of like left us in the back and we Mm. wanted to like push it forward. Um, So anyway, so we brought it out April of 2019 last year. Now we're eight pages every single week, every Thursday until this year when they switched it. And now we are on Sundays, which is fantastic. We just switched. (laughs) That's huge. Huge for us. And I think it's really a testament to um, how well that section is doing and how well received it's been among readers. You know, Sunday's biggest day of publication for the LA Times and for every newspaper. Um, So we're really happy in our new home. That's great. And with the new overhaul, what do you think have been your, you know, greatest successes so far? And what do you think could be, you know, um, better what do you what are your like goals for this year sure. to make it better? Sure. I think the things that we're most proud of so August 2018, the food section was three people. Now we're nine people and so we've tripled. And then on top of that, we have like a robust support team of videographers and a social media person. And, um, you know, dedicated uh, photographer. So it's just like we're, we're now like a big team, which is really, really fantastic. We now have two restaurant critics. We have two cooks um, putting out original recipes every single week. Uh, we have two video series, which is really exciting for us. We've never had like a full-on original series that – um, with episodes every week. So the first one is Lucas Peterson's Off Menu, mm-hmm. um, which just finished up. And then we're gearing up to launch Jen Harris's The Bucket List, mm-hmm. which is a series all about fried chicken because yeah. she is the oh. L.A. fried chicken queen. queen. Yep. <laughs> so that is going to be out on Tuesday, January 28th. I'm super, super excited about that. 
Um, and I think, you know, if you look through the pages of the section every week, we have really pushed the envelope in terms of thinking about what a food section can be and then making it more fun, making it, in the words of our uh, editor, Peter Mahan, also a little more stupid at times, you know, <laughs> not taking ourselves like so Super seriously. Serious yeah, because I think like back in the day, a lot of food sections were all about fancy restaurants and you know, nice wine pairings. And, and like, we'll do some of that. But I think a lot of food, particularly in L.A., um, is is a lot more compelling than that, is a lot more varied than that. And those are the kinds of stories we're trying to tell. Um, to answer your question about what we want to do this year, I think last year was about establishing a base, about showing, uh, like I said, you know, making things a little bit more lighthearted. I think this year with the election coming up um, and with us now, uh, you know, we've got our feet wet. We know what we want to do. I'd love to see the coverage be a little bit more issues-based. Um, I'd like us to uh, do stories that are a little more hard-hitting, um, that look at what's going on in the rest of the world, and then and then taking those stories and seeing how they relate to food. Um, so in Peter Mahan's um, piece in, uh, I think, tw- yeah, 2019, sort of like introducing the overhaul of the food section, um, he said that he wanted it to be a window into or a mirror for the food culture of L.A. Um, and of California. Uh, what do you think he meant by that? And how has you and your team tried to accomplish that goal? I think, and that's, you know, classic Pete always writes <laughs> such a nice, such a nice line. Uh, I think, you know, what he means by that is making sure that we are recognizing um what is going on in LA, who our readers are, who the people cooking our food are, making sure that we're getting into neighborhoods all across LA and telling stories uh, that are diverse, um, that are representative of this amazing city that we live in, um, and making sure that we're not ignoring corners of it, right? And I think that for us, a lot of the times that means making sure that our restaurant reviews are coming from from places that are spread out all over this county and beyond. Um, I think it's it's pushing us to not rely too much on like press releases from restaurant groups that have a lot of money so that they can tell us about their latest places, but but getting out there going into into little restaurants that no one has heard of before, um, places that have been overlooked communities that have been ignored um, and making sure that we are pushing their stories to the forefront and and uh, you know because they like this is sort of like the fabric of LA right I mean I think that's you hear this a lot LA is the most exciting food city uh, in the country right now I fully believe that and and so much of what makes it that way are the restaurants that you will not find in any other city mm-hmm. um, when I saw that I'm a I'm a geography major when I saw that um, big Maps guy, when I saw the the, fir- the big map, right, on the front of your yeah. first issue, um, you know, basically of all, of all, of, all of L.A., very wide-encompassing and the sort of style and the artistic design, I got the whole, you know, we're not going to be super ultra-serious about this. We're going to try to try to uh, reach out everywhere. And I could tell that, um, you know, that was your intent and message from just from that Thank you. Design. Yeah, that that very first standalone issue that we did in April of last year, I think, really set the tone. Um, telling readers, I mean, and this is still the case, the food section looks different than any other section currently at the LA Times. We have really, uh, I think, expanded beyond what a newspaper typically looks like in a really good way. And I think, and, and Pete is 
uh, a huge part of that. You know, he he came from Lucky Peach, um, which was this like seminal food magazine that he helped co-found. And, you know, the look of that magazine, the kinds of stories that they would do, I think were groundbreaking. And now we have taken, you know, some of that as inspiration for what we do at the LA Times. So it's funny. It's like, you know, usually front page of a food section, it's like a big glossy photo of like some sort of beautiful food. And and for us, when we started out, it was like this big pink, like, like illustration done by Clay Hickson, who's a local artist. Um, and it was like dozens and dozens of different LA restaurants were portrayed on that map, which I still love, and we've put it on tote bags and <laughs> posters and that kind of thing, and people, you know, absolutely adore that map. Um, and we've continued to do that. So I think if you look at, like, the pages of the section now, you'll see spot illustrations throughout. A lot of our covers are just full-page illos instead of, you know, a lot of text or um, a lot of photos. And I think that that's something you'll continue to see, which is, like, just a very art-driven section. Yeah, and um, speaking of how... Um, eclectic, the Los Angeles scene is, and how um, through your journalism you're trying to make it more accessible. Um, I, um, while we were doing our research, I came across one of your articles about the Michelin Guide with the title, um, Not Real Foodies. The Michelin Guide Eats Its Words Will Return to Los Angeles. And with that, I just wanted to ask, um, like, you know, how do you think the Michelin Guide did or will do LA justice? Um, or And should we consider Los Angeles a Michelin town or not? Right. That is such a good question. Um, so the backstory being, you know, the Michelin Guide, uh, arguably the most respected dining guide in the world. Um, Star ratings, you know, one star to three, three being the absolute best. Michelin has kind of a complex relationship with the city of L.A. They came to L.A. Um, about, I think they were here for two years, 2008 and 2009. Uh, and when they came to town and started awarding stars, it was highly controversial because Michelin is known for... Um, I mean, fancy restaurants. That's what <laughs> they like. They like really high-end restaurants, um, like what I consider white tablecloth kinds of places. And then you come to a place like L.A. where, you know, some of my favorite meals in the city are in the SGV. They're in K-Town. They're taco trucks. How do you rate restaurants against that ruler, you know, and, and so Michelin, after just a couple of years, pulled out of L.A. And um, afterwards, shortly afterwards, their director gave that infamous quote, you know, L.A., people in L.A. are not real foodies, which both, I think, rubbed people the wrong way. And then also was like, yeah, we're not the kind of foodies that you're talking about, you know, mm-hmm. like, and that's fine with us. Um, but on the other hand, you know, when Michelin is in a city, whether it's, New York or Chicago or international places, I think what it does is it shines a light on those cities. um, And it helps tourists especially have a sense of where to go if they're looking for a certain kind of restaurant, that kind of like very high-end restaurant. Um, And and I know a lot of chefs in particular were hoping that Michelin would come back, even if maybe like publicly (laughs) they'd Mm -hmm. be like, no, no, we don't care. But I think that that distinction means something to them. So 
over the last couple of years, there were rumors all the time that that Michelin's inspectors were like secretly like in restaurants checking out the L.A. scene again um, and might come back. And sure enough, last year uh, they announced that they would return to L.A. Um, The guide came out in June. And, you know, in the weeks leading up to that, there was rampant speculation about how Michelin would 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 look at L.A. in 2019, what kind of places would get those coveted stars. Um, and I was I was down in Orange County the day that they made that announcement. And, you know, there were some restaurants that were it was like, OK, this totally makes sense. Somni, which we talked about earlier in the show, um, very expensive tasting menu restaurant, beautiful, uh, like a 10 seater, um, got two stars, which makes sense. Uh, there were Places like Dialogue in Santa Monica, another tasting menu restaurant that got a star, Cato, which was our number one restaurant on our 101 list last year, got a star. And and for me, you know, not too many surprises on that list. Um, I would have obviously have liked to have seen uh, places from SGV, um, more places from SGV, more places that sort of better represented L.A. or all that L.A. has to offer. Um, but, you know, for the most part, I think that I think it's a good thing, actually. And I know some people don't, but um, I think it's pushing the chefs to stay on their toes, think about what the, you know, they care. I mean, I think that's what it comes down to. It's like they care that Michelin is here. Uh, and I also think that it's good from like a tourism standpoint, yeah. too. I think that mm-hmm. for people out there, diners who are kind of like star collectors, when they come to L.A., you know, they – they will take L.A. more seriously, whether that's like the right measurement or not. Um, you mentioned dialogue and um, Chef Dave, is it Baron? Baron. Baron. Mm-hmm. Chef Dave Baron just opened up. Okay, this is another one. Pajoli? Pajoli, Pajoli, yes, okay. So um, dialogue you mentioned just got a Michelin star. Um, do you think he's um, helping to bring sort of French-inspired or or French-Californian cuisine uh, sort of research, make it resurge back in L.A.? Yeah, I, I think that, you know, so so Dave Barron's background is he came from Next in Chicago, which is one of my favorite restaurants. Um, it's this, like, shape-shifting uh, tasting menu where, like, every four months they completely switch up the menu. It's themed. So, for instance, the one that they are doing right now is Tokyo. The very first one that they did several years ago um, was a Scaffier French um, theme. They've they've done the Hunt. They've done a vegan restaurant, uh, and I think that it's just one of the most unique and interesting and exciting restaurants. Um, a few years ago, Dave announced that he was leaving Chicago and coming to LA, which I remember like when I read that, I was like, oh my god, <laughs> Dave Barron in LA. That's that's a really big deal. Um, and he ultimately opened Dialogue, which is like a small 18-seater in uh, randomly a food hall on the Third Street Promenade. Which, By a McDonald's or used to be a McDonald's. Yeah. Right? Yeah. It's like on the second floor and like downstairs there's like a pizza and burger joint. And, you know, <laughs> and, and again, like I love stuff like that. I love quirky L.A. things where you have no idea that like right upstairs is like one of the best restaurants in town. Um, so last fall, he opened up his follow-up, his second restaurant, Pajoli, which is a la carte, more casual than dialogue. Um, it's on the border of Santa Monica and Venice. And very quickly, it has become um, 
one of my favorite restaurants, a great, I think I've been, God, it's like crazy. I think I've been like eight times what? since mid-September. <laughs> in Pasholi a lot. Uh, yeah. And, and you know, what's wonderful about that is I feel like when I first heard the concept, which was, you know, rigorous, technique-driven French, but with like a California twist, I was like, wow, how is that going to do in L.A.? You know, I mean, the food is, it's so good, but I just didn't know if that was going to resonate with diners. And like every time I've been in, no matter if it's the weekend, if it's the weekday, like that place is is full, which I think is really cool. And I and it's part of a wave of French restaurants that have opened, French-ish restaurants, I should say, that have opened in the last year. Um, bon Tom downtown is another good example. Uh, and I think I think that's awesome because I feel like for a while French food was coming off as a little bit like passe, yeah. and and now you know it's like it's back and and it's being done really well. And um, alongside French food, you also recently covered um, an Indonesian restaurant. Mm-hmm. Um, and you were talking about the hashtag Asian Avengers. <laughs> um, and um, with that, it, it got me thinking now, especially a lot of um, third generation immigrants are chefs in Los Angeles, and that's great. But sometimes it feels like their second identity as an American um, gets misunderstood as their food not being authentic enough. Um, so I was wondering what are your thoughts about that and how does that, how does that, you know, um, contribute to, like, us um, defining food as authentic or inauthentic? Right. Uh, another great question. I think that, I think, you know, the notion of authenticity in food is something that we have also, like as a section, tried to push back against when people feel like food has to be a certain way in order for it to be correct. When, when you know, that sort of pigeonholes cuisines and it also doesn't leave a lot of room for people to interpret it themselves, to bring their own spin to it. Um, and I think what's really wonderful about L.A. is, you know, this is a city that still affords chefs a lot of opportunities. It's not so prohibitively expensive like San Francisco if you are – a young chef in your 20s starting out, um, there is room for you in L.A. to do to do your own thing. And the Indonesian restaurant or pop-up that you mentioned is called Inda. It's run by um, this 30-year-old named Zen Ong. And I checked out his pop-up last month. Um, and it was, for me, kind of like a revelation because it's it was Indonesian food, which I've had, but not like this. You know, he was doing it as a tasting menu format. Um, in like a little private venue in Koreatown. And, uh, you know, taking the food that he grew up with that his grandmother made for him when he would visit Indonesia as a kid. But then, but then you know, bringing his own like fine dining background to it, bringing like elements of L.A. to it. So you'd have certain dishes that, you know, were at their core, like quote unquote, you know, like Indonesian, but that he was... Um, just like modernizing a bit, and and when he was talking to diners, as he was like spooning sauces onto their onto their courses, you know, he was like authenticity. I think the quote was like, um, "It shouldn't be limiting, you know. It should just be a point of reference and a jumping off point." Um, and I found that inspiring. And he is close with John Yao of Cato, mm-hmm. who's doing a lot of the similar things with Taiwanese food. He's also good friends with Mei Lin um, of Nightshade downtown who's doing something similar with Chinese food, you know, so 
at Nightshade, for instance, um, one of Maylin's most popular dishes is this Mapo tofu lasagna, where it's like, yeah, it has the flavors of Mapo tofu. You taste it and you recognize it as something that, like for me, that I've had since I was a kid, but it's plated beautifully. It's it's set in between these like layers of pasta. Um, and, you know, for me, like that's that perfect intersection of you know, quote unquote, like authentic Chinese food <laughs> and and what she wants to do with it. Um, and I think that that uh, I think it works really well. I and mean, there's so many there's so many examples of that um, in L.A. right now. Mm-hmm. How you doing? You good? Good on the on the totally. hour? We can go the whole hour. <laughs> yeah, I'm I'm good. Awesome. Cool. You guys good? Good. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, so you have you have a little you said, talked about your business background. Um can we switch gears a little bit to like maybe a little bit of the business side of food? Sure. Um, so in a recent piece um, in the LA Times that really struck with me, um, uh, Evan Kleiman, um, uh, her piece was called Treacherous Times, little piece. Um, she said that she feared that soon there'll be a sort of contraction um, in the restaurant business as similar to um, the housing, uh, that, that the contraction in the housing market during the Great Recession. Um partly to do with, um, like, the death of the neighborhood restaurant and um, investors being impatient. Mm-hmm. Um, do you foresee any sort of um, collapse of, of sort of restaurant bubble um, in, in the coming future? Yeah, that's something that, that I think about a lot, that we've talked a lot about in our section, um, especially at the end of the year when we were bouncing around ideas for, like, our predictions for 2020 in the restaurant world. And one of my colleagues was like, there's there's totally a restaurant bubble. I mean, how can the city sustain so many openings every single week? And it's true. I mean, I when I first joined the the section, I had a list of restaurants that I hadn't yet been to. And I had this totally ridiculous notion. I'm like, okay, as soon as I get through these like 17 restaurants, I'll be cut up, you know. <laughs> and then, like a year and a half later, I can tell you there is no catching up. I mean, every single week I'm like – Oh my god! I gotta get to this place. It's like this, like this week alone. I'm like, okay, Kismet Rotisserie just opened. I gotta get there. I went to the Soba restaurant that I told you guys about the other night. Then on top of that, there's like one-off collaborations. So the other day, I went to Pizana because um, Daniele, the chef, was doing his like occasional Padrino Italian sub, and I wanted to try that. And it's just it it ends up feeling like. Um, there's just like not enough time for all the openings and all the events and like all the dishes that one wants to get to around the city. Um, I think that, yes, we will see uh, a number of big restaurant closings in 2020. Um, I I think that as big as L.A. is and as many diners as there are, um, Places fall out of favor, you know, pretty quickly if they don't give you a compelling reason to keep coming back. Um, I think that I think that there's just uh, so many options, which makes it feel overwhelming sometimes. And and you have to have like that right food slash value proposition um, to really and and you know something special to to sustain yourself in this kind of like pretty cutthroat environment. Um, I think that last year alone, there were a number of places that closed that really surprised me. So um, Hearth and Hound, where the food was really good, by April Bloomfield in Hollywood, that shut down. Um, Simone was a really big restaurant. Closure earlier in the year, um, Fiona, which I really loved, um, closed after just a few months. 
Uh, and then obviously the biggest one being the manufacturing, um, which was that massive tartine-backed project, two restaurants, um, a marketplace, uh, a takeout window for coffee and ice cream. And that lasted just 11 months at the Road DTLA. And, you know, that's the kind of thing where you, you look at a project like that. And and my thinking early on with it was like, it's, it's too big to fail. Yeah. You know, it was like it had money. It had a cool downtown location. Um, it had a brand that a lot of people knew, Tartine from San Francisco, um, and also Chris Bianco from Pizzeria Bianco in Arizona. Uh, and and even that, you know, very quickly it became apparent that people simply were not going. Um, and, yeah, a year later it's it's gone, and now there's, like, this massive space at the manufacturing or at the row DTLA that's just sitting empty. Yeah, and that was actually going to be our next question. Um because um, the manufacturing closed and also Church and State, and I think Simone was also in the Arts District. Mm-hmm. Um, so there are, it's, it seems like the Arts District is a very turbulent place to open up a restaurant right now. Mm-hmm. Um, why do you think the reason for that is? I think part of it is possibly oversaturation because there's so much going on there. And again, it's like, how do you pick? And I, and, I, and I feel that way too. If I go to the arts district, I'm like, where am I going to eat? There are so many places and just mm-hmm. like one, one of me. Um, <laughs> I think it's that. I also think that the arts district being so new in terms of as like a hotspot for dining still kind of needs to find its footing. I think that... Um, I also wonder how many people who aren't like entrenched in the food world are thinking to themselves like, okay, I'm going to drive out to the Arts District from Venice or the Valley Mm -hmm. or Orange County or um, SGV or wherever to go to the Arts District. I think there's that. Um, I also think that rents are becoming extremely expensive and that is is hurting a lot of restaurants. Um, And that's the part that makes me feel bummed out because like I was saying, I still feel like LA does have a lot of commercial real estate opportunities for for chefs that don't have like a ton of money. Um, But I think that downtown is now becoming for some people prohibitively expensive. Um, So it's like if you if you start your restaurant, you have, you know, a few months where you're where you expect to not make money right out of the gate. But then shortly after you need to start becoming profitable. And I feel like that window is narrow. And if you can't sort of get it together, get enough diners to come in regularly. Um, a lot of them just, they look at their bottom line and they say, hey, you know, this it's just not working. Mm-hmm. And then they just choose to close. Um, so that's one of the problems that you mentioned um, is the high rent, um, especially in that area. Um, and chefs and owners looking to open restaurants um, often see that and say, I, I can't, I can't afford this space. So they move out to cheaper spots and cheaper neighborhoods, which um, is a large fuel of gentrification. Mm-hmm. Um, do you think this cycle can be stopped uh, or and should it be stopped? Yeah, it's so complicated. Um, right. It's not a very simple answer. <laughs> I, you know, it's weird. It's like you see these neighborhoods. When I first moved to L.A., you know, there there wasn't that much like Echo Park and Silver Lake as restaurant destinations they, they just weren't, you know, they were just much sleepier. Um, and now it's like night and day downtown too. Honestly, when I started at the times in 2007, I remember like my very first day, one of my business colleagues was like, let me give you a piece of advice. Cause I was like 22. Um, and he said, 
you know, when the sun goes down, like after work, go straight to your car. And he's like, and leave downtown. Like, that's like crazy. Um, and a couple years after that, one of my friends from the West Side came downtown for, for dinner and we walked to Bakum Rakat, which at the time was pretty new. She was very nervous. She's just been, she's just gone engaged. And she was like, I'm turning my ring around. So the diamond is like in my palm. And I'm like, what? You know, I was like, why? But she, you know, it's just like, she was really like afraid of being in that part of downtown, which is crazy to think about now. Um, but anyway, I mean, the, the, I think that other neighborhoods now we're seeing, for instance, like West Adams, which a couple years ago did not have, um, had, you know, had great restaurants, but now we're seeing like, like Alta Adams move in, Mian is moving in. Um, Mian from SGV? Yeah. Really? They are opening up a location. Oh, oh my West God. Adams. I was going to drive all the way out there. Yeah. Now just I'm- wait a little bit and you can just, it's much closer now. I know. And and like every time this happens, it's, it's yeah, it is, it is complicated because on one hand, I'm like, oh my God, that's great. I love Mian and now I don't have to go to SGV. Um, and, and, I saw on Twitter yesterday that, like, a Whole Foods might be moving into West Adams. Wow. Again, on Twitter. So, like, I oh. <laughs> had to confirm. But but it's hard because I know, like, when, when Alta Adams was about to open, um, and that's by Keith Corbin, uh, who's from Watts and used to be from local down there, and Daniel Patterson, uh, a Bay Area chef um, of Qua, which is a really, really nice restaurant in San Francisco and also from local you know, they wanted they talked a lot about wanting to move into that neighborhood in a thoughtful way. You know, you don't want to come in with your concept and um, and make people who have been living there for decades feel like this is no longer a community that they recognize, that outsiders are coming in uh, and opening up places that they can't afford to go to. Right. And I think that Alta Adams has done a really nice job of hiring from within that community of of walking around through the neighborhood, introducing themselves to longtime residents, um, and then making sure that the food and the prices match, you know, what the residents there can afford. And I think that, like, every time I've been in there, I've been really happy to see, like, it it feels like a local neighborhood spot, you know, and I think that's what they were going Mm -hmm. for. Um, So I think, like, it's it's really about being thoughtful. I think it's about being considered. Um, But, yeah, I don't don't know what it means long term. I mean, you want these – neighborhoods in LA, one of the things that's so great about them is that neighborhoods feel distinct. You know, when you're in West Hollywood, it feels different than if you're in West Adams. When you're in K-Town, it has a different flavor than when you're in historic Filipino town, um, and which is another neighborhood that's like, you know, fast gentrifying. How do you do it in a way so these places still feel true to themselves? Um, and uh, I guess first and foremost, are still places that um, fit that community and that the community, you know, responds to. And um, when you're investing in a restaurant like that or when you're trying to open up a restaurant, how does that like investment process go? And has it now changed with, you know, I guess the restaurant boom in Los Angeles? Yeah, I think it's different from chef to chef. You know, some mm-hmm. of them will work with just a very small group of like investor friends you know, where like they um, have a certain amount of money that they're looking for and they go within their own tight-knit circle. And others take out big loans. Um, others will do the pop-up thing for a while, mm-hmm. you know, where they mm-hmm. will just 
go from like location to location, saving up money before they open up their own place. And then others are like manufactory backed by like huge group of massive uh, investors with deep pockets. Um, so I think it, I mean, I actually, I think it totally depends on like what a person's, what a chef's situation is. Mm-hmm. Okay. I think we should, let's switch from the business side, little, go to a little more optimistic <laughs> outlook. Um, it's Dine LA. It is. Dine Today. LA. <laughs> yes. Um, do you have any restaurants you're looking, you're looking forward to? I, you know, do you, first of all, do you like Dine LA? Uh, so before I joined the food section, I was like all about Dine LA. Yeah. And, and <laughs> because also back then it wasn't as regular a, an occurrence as it is now. But yeah, I would always look through the list of restaurants that were doing Dine LA and then try and figure out which ones actually had good deals. Yeah. Because I feel like for some of them, like, okay, some of the restaurants I would go to and they would be places that I'd been wanting to go to but couldn't afford. Um, and then when I saw them on the Dine LA list, I'm like, oh my God, I'm totally going there. And then I would arrive and find out that they were doing dishes that were not off of their regular menu. They were sort of like, you know, Dine LA specific, Mm -hmm. um, which I didn't like as much because, you know, you want to feel like you're getting the actual restaurant experience when you go to a place for Dine LA. And then the other ones where it's like once you do the math and you compare like, okay, on the regular menu – this dish would cost this much, and you find out it's actually only like a $4 saving. It's <laughs> like stuff like that. Um, I don't do Dine LA as much anymore because I'm now like out all the time and have to go to restaurants, you know, for stories or restaurants that just opened. But it's funny that you ask about that because I totally was looking up just this morning the Dine LA menu for cola pasta because <laughs> oh. I wanted to go and I wanted to know if that half moon was like on the menu. I don't think it is. Was and it? It's not. No. Oh. So I'm <laughs> that pasta is like $14 anyway. It's yeah, like an amazing it's so deal. Affordable. Yeah. I know. I'm I, like, I may just have to go right after this because <laughs> I feel like I'm pretty close right now. You know, yeah. 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 You are pretty close. Yeah. Maybe I'll be there in like literally 90 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I think like that, that's that's my advice for people with Dine LA, which is is just to do a little bit of math to f- see if it's actually yeah. a deal or not. Mm-hmm. Do you guys have Dine LA picks? I do. I I haven't looked at the list yet. I've um like last year I kind of decided that it wasn't really cost effective for me because I also don't eat like that much stuff from a menu. Mm. So I kind of, I kind of let it go. <laughs> you say not that much stuff. You feel like because it's like a three course thing. Yeah, it's just too much food. Yeah, got it's, it. It's usually too much food for I me. <laughs> I unfortunately don't have that problem. I'm like, I'm like the opposite. I'm like, how can I like supplement this dino with like an extra little nibble? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I can force myself. I know the limits to my stomach. Yeah, and if I want to, I know I can go there. Yeah. But then I don't feel so good afterwards. <laughs> you are smart. I need to stop going there. <laughs> it's totally my issue. That's funny. Um, I never did in the past because I worked at a restaurant and they did Dine LA. And it was like not, did not, you know, was not affordable. They just like, yeah. basically you would be paying more for Dine LA than you would if you went there normally. So it put me off. But this year I did a lot of research. And Ma'am Sir has, it's $39 per person. You get two appetizers, mm. a main, and a dessert, which Ooh. is four four courses. I've never been to Mamsar. Mamsar is great. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's Filipino restaurant. Um, Silver Lake, or is it on the border? I think it's Silver Lake. I think so, too. Yeah. 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 I, I recommend. You should totally mm-hmm. go do that. And um, surprisingly, I have to call to check, but Orsa and Winston has, it says, for their dinner, it says five-course tasting menu. Whoa. $59, which oh. is $26 cheaper 
than their normal five oh, course tasting menu. Oh my God. If okay. So that was deal. Yeah. Yeah. So do you want to describe Orson Winston for sure? Listening? Yeah, definitely. Um, Orson Winston, one of my favorite restaurants in LA. It's by Joseph Centeno. Um, we call his restaurants Centeno Plex. Um, Number seven on the um, 101. The most recent yeah. 101. Yeah. So he he's so fantastic. What I love about Joseph is he has a trio of restaurants downtown um, at the intersection of like four. They're all basically around Fourth and Main. And it started with Baco Mercat. And then um, he now also has Orson Winston and Bar Ama. What I think is really cool is all three of them are doing their own thing. You know, sometimes a chef opens up several restaurants and, like, they're all kind of within the same family where, like, one of them is just, like, slightly more high-end or something. With Joseph's restaurants, it's like Bar Ama is Tex-Mex and Orson Winston is, like, the – it's the most high-end one in that it's, like, Japanese-French-inspired. That's probably the best way to describe it seafood forward. Um, they've got like so many dishes that I think are fantastic. This really amazing seafood rice porridge at lunchtime and at brunch that is like scallops and uni and <laughs> mushrooms. It's like one of one of the best things. Um, at night, they offer a tasting menu and it's already, I think, pretty affordably priced. But mm-hmm. you were saying 59? It's 59 for oh Dino Lay. The thing is, I have because it just says five course tasting menu. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that's their normal tasting menu. I don't know if it's smaller portions or like off menu items. Right. Um, but I will call and see if, if it's the same menu as their normal $85 per person menu. I am there. Yeah. You. <laughs> uh, oh, my God. I might be there. Too. Yeah, that's great. I mean, we. My friends and I actually spent New Year's Eve um, at his other place bar. Or we were no, we were at Baco. Uh, we were at Baco Mercat that night. We did Bar Ama last year. Um, and there's just something about his restaurants, like they they they're like warm places to be. You know, they're fun. Um, even at Orson Winston, which is more expensive, it's, it doesn't have that like stuffy, overly formal feeling. Um, and it's. Like my colleague Jen Harris loves to bounce around from one to one, which you can totally do since they're like all within a block of one another. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, that's that's such an amazing deal. Yeah. And before we close out our show, um, would you want to like plug anything in, anything exciting happening for you or for LA Times food section? Anything you want to mention? Yeah. I mean, I think as always, subscribe. I think that, you know, we we love hearing from the public that you guys like seeing what we're doing, you know, that that you're recognizing that the section has changed, that it's more youthful, um, that it's more varied in the different topics that we'll cover. I think for us, you know, we are always hoping that people read and then they subscribe, both whether that's like digital subscriptions online um, or print. And I mean, I personally, I'm old school. I love I love our print section. I like holding it in my hands on Sunday mornings. Um, and yeah, and and I think the other thing too is like reach out with ideas that you guys have. I mean, we're all very easy to reach via email, via Instagram, Twitter, um, because I really love meeting our readers. We have so many events throughout the year, the taste, um, at Paramount Studios in September. We have our 101 event in December. Um, and I think that for us, for me personally, as an editor, I really... I just I want to know what people think. I mean, I want to know about the the chefs, the restaurants, the neighborhoods that they want to see more stories out of. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, don't be don't be shy. <laughs> Thank you for 
coming over to the station today and having a chat with us. Yeah, thank so. Thank you, guys. Oh, I'm sorry. No, no, no. I was just, I was just saying thank you. <laughs> <laughs> you just listened to our interview with Deputy Food Editor Andrea Chang. Um, yeah, thanks again. Thank you. Yeah. We'll be back next week at the same time. Um, 12 p.m. on UCRadio.com. Make sure to tune in for the next show. Um, Great set. Um, And enjoy your weekend.